everybody. It's me, Dave Wakeman. This is my podcast, The Business of Fun. Thank you for being here. My guest today is longtime friend of The Business of Fun podcast. It's Brett Zelaski. And we talk about a whole bunch of stuff about uh, season tickets, sports ticket sales, um, tons and tons of stuff. Um, this is probably only half of the conversation we had, but it's a great one. And I think one that you're going to learn a lot from. But first, before I tell you a little bit more about Brett, let me ask you, how's everybody doing? It's September 1st, 2020, um, at least in the States. Things are still crazy. Um, we're still not sure exactly where we are in dealing with the pandemic, where things are going, what the future is going to look like over the next several months. Um don't worry, I'm aware of the 2,000-plus students at the University of Alabama who have come down with the coronavirus in the two weeks since classes start. I'm uh, well aware of that. Feel free to make all the Alabama jokes you want to at my expense. Um, I bring it upon myself. Um, but let me know how you're doing. Send me an email. It's dave at davewakeman.com. If you are struggling or you need somebody to talk to, make sure that you check in with me. I want to know what you're up to. I want to know that you're okay. So send me that email, davidavewakeman.com. Uh, make sure you check out my friends over at the We Will Recover Pro- Project. That's something put together by my friends Anar and Martin and their activity stream team to help folks all across the live entertainment industry uh, recover and find out new ways to help, sure, help themselves get back on their feet and focused on growing their businesses once again. That's at wewillrecover.live. I think over the next um, two or three weeks, we're going to have a few really, really cool things that are going to come out over there. Um, Spoiler alert, I think there's going to be some fun stuff. Um, So check it out, wewillrecover.live. Make sure you check out my friends at Booking Protect. Uh, www.bookingprotect.com that's forward slash home and that will get you to the home page uh, check out the blog there's some really great stuff on revenue relationships relaunching your business um, I've been pointing everybody to this really cool article that Kat Spencer wrote about um, expanding and growing your relationships after the pandemic uh, check them out make sure that uh, you tell them I said hello we have some great stuff coming up there as well about revenue reinvention relaunching. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't tell you to check out their Instagram page where Kieran has been doing a killer job of making sure to post like really awesome photos from when we, a huge events that have tons of people at them, uh, with great quotes and great examples of things that I know all of us are missing probably more than ever at this point. Um, so check them out on Instagram. That's booking protect. Um, if you get this far, and you deal with me, make sure you check out my Talking Tickets newsletter. You get that at talkingtickets.substack.com. And every Friday, I give you tools, tips, ideas, analysis, five stories that have come up during the course of the week and give you ways to deal with those stories or the examples those stories provide so that you and your business can get back on your feet as fast as possible from the pandemic. Um, Hopefully, a lot of places like Australia... Um, New Zealand and China, Taiwan, and some of the Asian markets are going to lead the way and show us how to do things the right way, get back on our feet. Um, I have been looking at the things that the Australians and the New Zealanders have been doing uh, all constantly for the last couple of months. You know, so check that out. It's in the Talking Tickets newsletter um, at talkingtickets.substack.com. 
So back to my guest. My guest today, Brett Zelaski. Uh, I think we recorded for about 90 minutes before, or we talked for about 90 minutes before we started recording, and we we're like, oh man, we got to get on with our day, so let's do a podcast. And so we did. And we talked about a lot of stuff, and it's some stuff I think maybe not comfortable for people because, uh, you, you know, I think uh, there has been this sort of reluctance to deal with. Uh, some of the harder truths that the pandemic has uncovered. So we talk about um, what the impact of on the sports business of this year is going to look like and how likely it is that this impact is going to be continuing to be felt for at least the next year or so into 2021, possibly even to 2022. Um, we talked about, you know, how organizations should be talking to their customers now, what revenue opportunities look like, what the future of the inside sales model is going to look like in sports, or if things are going to have to really, really change. Um, we talk about, you know, some of the data that's come out about fans and like how comfortable fans are going to feel. Uh, we talk about pricing. We talk about uh, price elasticity, value proposition. We talk about leagues and organizations that are doing a good job. We talk about some that maybe haven't been doing as well. Um, we talk about experiences and how some, you know, maybe we get back to the idea of storytelling. Um, we talk about narrative. We talk about all kinds of really, really great stuff. I, I even have somewhere in here marked on my notes, Ledley King, which both Brett and I love the Spurs. So that's a pretty good um, place to leave this. But uh, make sure you check this out. This is a great one with me and Brett Zelaski on the Business of Fun. All right, so here's a, a round whatever of uh, me and Brett Zelaski talking smack here. Um, I don't know that we even have an agenda today. Uh, it's just good to see your face. Uh, I was wondering what T-shirt you'd have on today. Uh, it looks like the Reno Aces. Reno Aces. And I have the, the Washington Capitals on, so that's air, um, on brand. Um, let's see, where should we start? Um, let me start by asking you to rant on something. Like what's, what's like really on your mind right now? Give me a rant. Well, so, so people don't know, but we just talked for probably an hour before this, <laughs> a lot of the talking points we'd hit here. But I think one of the most important things that's been on my mind a lot right now is how obviously we're understanding every day how sports are impacted in 2020. Um, I, I think one of the things that we need to start talking about, because we're only four or five months away right now, is how are sports going to be impacted in 2021? And one of the things that I'm saying to a lot of people, and either they're agreeing with because they're smart and they're thinking about it, but also a lot of people who aren't thinking about it is one of the biggest things is how is sports going to recover on the business side? Because as I said to you, like the operating costs of teams is usually built around season ticket revenue and sponsorship revenue. And then for the bigger sports, you know, TV revenue um, and TV revenue will be there again next year. But for a lot of professional sports teams and obviously teams, the revenue they've used on season tickets, the revenue that they've used on sponsorship has been used as an operating cost in 2020. And a lot of that stuff is being rolled over to 2021 because we're not playing in front of fans. And so everybody talks about this huge recovery for sports and sports business. Um, and one of the things I just think it's, I'm not saying people won't come back if they can, but I think we need to be really thoughtful Rail will be, what are we using? What are we doing to make up those operating costs so we can get back to normal? How are we going to adjust if we aren't doing that on the operating cost side? Um, and then are we prepared to play in front of 25% capacity? Are we prepared 
to go at 50% capacity? Are we prepared to go at 100% capacity? You know, those are a lot of the things that, you know, I've, man, since this has started, you know, I've, I've put out a couple of LinkedIn posts. I've talked to reps. I've talked to managers. I've talked to directors. I'm probably, this is no joke, probably close to about 500 people I've talked to right now. And I, and I hear no consistency across the board, whether it's a rep or it's a vice president or a president, there's not a lot of consistency. And I've heard some good answers. I've heard some bad answers, but there just doesn't seem to be any uniformity or consistency. Um, and, and that, that's one of those things that keeps me up at night as, as someone who really genuinely cares about this industry. Yeah. I would say that probably the most, I'll say, I'll say it up front here. So we get the, the we get the biggest punch if people only listen to the first five minutes. <laughs> I would say that the biggest challenge that we're seeing as a country, right? Because most, I mean, people listen to this thing are from all over the world, but so, I, but I'll take a pointed, um, measure at America right now is that we are failing to deal with this crisis as adults. And, you know, it's, it's, it's in sports here, which is going to be the bulk of our conversation. It's causing an issue where we're prolonging the pain unnecessarily because people are reluctant to make decisions. They are reluctant to act strategically. Um, They are reluctant to change the way that they've done business over the years um, you know, everything is, you know, if I stick my head in the sand and I pretend it's going to go away, it will. Or my favorite example that I've come up with during the pandemic is I've got this book called The Secret and it tells me if I think it, it will become so. Yeah. Am I wrong? Uh, no. And it's just, it's this environment right now, right? Where Teams are waiting for leagues to say something. Leagues are waiting for states to say something. Leagues are waiting for the government to say something. Teams are waiting. Like it's, it's, there's, there's not a lot of people that are making any decisions <laughs> at this point. And that obviously has a huge impact on how we think of right now. And that has a huge impact on how we think about the future. Um, and what revenue is going to look like in 2021 and we can't decide if we're going to be playing in front of people tomorrow. And I think what a lot of people are avoiding is not just not making a decision, but making a bad decision. And that's why, I mean, I know he gets so much um, praise and it's because he earns it. You know, one of the things that Adam Silver said early on that I thought really set the tone um, for how successful the NBA has been during this time was we are just choosing from a lot of bad choices. Like, Every choice we can make is a really bad choice. And if you pull the thread, it's going to unravel. But what we need to do is we need to make the best choice of the bad choices. And saying that up front, I think, was the appropriate tone to set. And which is why they've been the league that has had the most success. They've been the ones that have generated the most revenue, been the most thoughtful, given teams the luxury of being able to plan in advance, those eight teams that aren't in the bubble, being able to actually plan for future time if they weren't going to be able to do it. Um, there's a lot of this and a lot of those decisions were critiqued at the time, but came to be right because they were very thoughtful and thought through all those things. And so I think, you know, obviously I, I spent some time around him at the NBA league office. So I'm a little jaded, but that was an incredibly smart man who made an adult decision early on. And obviously the league is, is benefiting from it in a really, uh, as, as good as it could yeah. right now. And that's, and that's not to say, all the teams underneath that have been perfect or they're making all the right decisions or all those things. 
but he made an adult decision early on. The NWSL is a really under the radar one that make good decisions early on. Um, and, and they're all really benefiting right now from, from making really strong decisions and have gained a lot of really positive national press, not necessarily when the decisions were made, but once they started playing and once people started seeing those things be executed, have received a lot of positive praise. So it's easy to go negative because I think there's so many negatives, but I want to highlight those when you talk about who made adult decisions. To me, two of the ones that really stand out are the NWSL and the NBA who made really tough decisions up front, um, got critique on them, but didn't back down from those decisions. Yeah, I, I'll make uh, three points here. Number one, great name drop for Adam Silver, and I worked in the NBA office. Well done. The, the yeah. Shameless plug. Well, they know who I am. It's good. <laughs> hey, I tell you all the time, I'm like going, blow and toot your horn away, because if yeah. you don't, who is, right? Um, so well played. <laughs> the second thing, though, is I also would like to point to, as people who have handled this extremely well, um, the NWSL and the WNBA have done a really great job, and they, they've mirrored the um, the way that leaders, like female leaders around the world, have handled this thing very well. Um, they've done a really great job. And another one that I think really has done a fantastic job um, that I think gets overshadowed by some of the things is the NHL. Gary Bettman and his yeah. team have done a fantastic job, uh, including you know just starting with the way they handled the shutdown and the way um, that they worked um, about testing for the players and the way that they didn't want to take resources from the communities they existed in, so being really cognizant of the impact uh, that their decisions were going to have on the communities that their players live and work in. Um, I thought they done, they did a really, really great job. And then the third thing is, is like I, I definitely want to highlight more of the positive things because what I've discovered and what I don't think is an un, is a, shouldn't be a, a controversial statement right now is yeah. that leadership does matter. And it was I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and I was like, one. You know, one of the things I've struggled with a lot during this time has been I don't want to be the kind of person who, you know, is always expecting the worst out of people, number one. But number two is, like, I don't want to be the person who's just telling people what they want to hear because that's what's going to make them comfortable or that's what they want to hear. I want to be able to, like, go, hey, this is not what you want to hear, but this is really what's happening so that like there's a some place they can turn that they can trust. You know, if they yeah. somebody calls me or talks to me or engages with me, I want them to be able to know that they can trust me. That I'm coming to this from a point of view that is, it may not be simple, it may not be easy, but it is um, honest and accurate. And so that's you know that's been my point of view because again, leadership is tough to find in the country as a whole now, right now. And so it's really, to me, it's prolonging all of these things. So I definitely am trying to spend as much time as possible highlighting those, um, those positive uh, leaders and the people who are doing well. Yeah, I think it's, you know, to me, the ones that have done a really good job in this, not just league side, but team side too, were the ones that said, all right, this sucks. How do we save money right now? Like, how do we make sure that the revenue that's in the organization stays in the organization? How do we provide anybody that spent money with us? How do we not wait for them to come to us? How do we provide solutions for them that allows them to see their money now? And then, which is, I think, what every good proactive business did, not just in sports, but, and then the second one was, all right, now we need to generate revenue because we need to save jobs. And 
we, how do we generate revenue in a way that doesn't make us look like ambulance chasers, but we can stand in front of our clients or prospects and say that we are adding value for them and that value may not come right now, but that value, that value will come to you and that will be good for you um, down the line. And I think those organizations that didn't wait for people to start complaining that were proactive about a lot of those things, um, I think you're starting to see some, some of those, some of those leaders are, are seeing a tremendous amount of success where, you know, other ones, you know, they, they, you may not see it right now, but, you know, is, are going to be exposed when we start getting team fans back into stadiums because, man, you, if you're not communicating with your fans, if you're not talking to your fans, if you're not providing options for your fans, you are putting, those relationships in jeopardy and assuming that those people are just going to be super pumped to run back in the stadium when this is open is making a very, very dangerous, dangerous assumption. Well, there's a lot that you just opened the door on. And one of the things though, that I want to highlight, but I, I don't want to skip this one because I know this caught people's attention is the assumption that people are going to just rush back into the stadium because the doors are open. Today's Thursday, right? So, I think it was in yesterday. So Tuesday was reported Disney who were like, we're throwing open the doors of our parks. It's going to be tremendous. People are going to rush back. It's going to be like nothing ever changed. Uh, reported their first loss since 2001, I believe. Right. And it just, it, and I think that should be a warning sign to people that just because you can do something or just because you do say you're going to do something, it's not going, doesn't mean that's what your customer thinks. Yeah. What's been interesting to me, and I'll be curious to see what the conversations you've had are like. Some of my partners, and some of the people I've been working with, they said, oh, you know, they have started to test um, and talk with their clients about, like, when things will come back or, like, what things will look like, how they would feel comfortable, you know, what, what are they expecting. And they have been really surprised that and this is a lot of, like, the more premium buyers and, the, you know, the, the B2B audience aren't going to rush back. They aren't necessarily thinking through how to go back and make the same investment on tickets and on hospitality and on uh, sponsorship as they were before. And people are a little bit alarmed about what, you know, what that means. Um, so I'm kind of curious about, you know, what your conversations when people are talking, what are they telling you about similar situations? And then number two, the more interesting part for me is, how are people reinventing their value proposition? Because that's what this really comes down to is a, a really fundamental need to rethink the value proposition. Yeah, so many good things there. Uh, so many things to discuss and talk about. And please let me, I just had a million things going while you, while you were talking about it. I think the first one is, you know, I've had access to a number I've of- I've got notes, like, Brett. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. We'll be good. Uh, I've had access to a few fan comeback surveys and I can't speak individually to them, um, but I can tell you just globally, like- there are a lot of things that teams need to do. They need to be now over communicating the safety measures that they're going to be taking when they come back. That's not a thing that you can do at the last second because people are going to make decisions well ahead of time. Right now, they need to be focused on what are those safety measures that, listen, maybe even out to, maybe if you're not playing games in front of fans until 2021, even now, communicating the safety measures that you're taking within your organization and what you're already thinking about that you already are thinking about how you're going to treat your fans when they come back in. You know, a lot of the surveys say that, you know, fans aren't going to feel truly comfortable like across the board until probably 90 or 120 days into seeing 
how the teams are handling it first. So you're looking at a potential lag if you're not over communicating the safety measures that you're taking and then being very thoughtful about looking at the exact numbers. Like I can tell you, you know, I think, you know, I think it's starting to become less political, but like masks were never really a political issue. Like people felt safe wearing masks. That's every fan survey that I've seen the numbers for not just staff wearing masks, but people themselves wearing masks were off the charts. And so over communicating these things, talking about these things, being diligent about these things are really important. And now here's the second challenge to that is we know the age demographic that will come running back into the stadium, right? And that is 18 to 35, right? Like 18 to 35 will come sprinting back in the stadium. We've seen the pictures of what, like the Ozarks. We've seen the pictures of South Padre Island. You know, we've seen all those things. Some of us with like horror and disgust, but like we've seen those pictures and I think is that we're empathetic for those pictures too. Like we want to be back there ourselves and feel comfortable there. But the reality is, is we've also in a lot of cases priced those fans out of our stadiums. So we are going to face this issue of the people that would come running back into the stadium. Are they going to be able to afford to come back in the stadium? A lot of them have lost jobs. They've been laid off. They're on unemployment right now. Um, you know, a lot of them don't have a lot of discretionary income to begin with, much less with everything that's happening now. A lot of them are still spending that money. So it's not like that money is going in the bank. They are going to the Ozarks. They are going to South Padre. So this idea that we have this one demographic of people that it, that every survey will tell you will run back in and they probably can't afford our ticket price, which, yes, businesses are going to slow, be slow to react. Families are going to be slow to react coming back in the stadium. Older people who you're talking about a lot of teams that have average season ticket ages, right? Of like in the fifties, like that's where most across the board, I think MLS is the only one out of the big five sports that don't have an average season ticket age of above 50. Like none of those people are going to be running back. And so does the secondary market become flooded? Do teams flood the secondary market? Like, right. Like there's like, I just cascaded real hard (laughs) in that one conversation, but this is how things are. Teams are going to need to start thinking strategically and differently what we talked about before, what really is your value proposition when you walk back in the door? Well, see, what the people don't realize is, like you said, we talked for like an hour before this. Yeah. And so uh, we were worried we were going to leave all the good stuff on the uh, podcast editing room floor. <laughs> and we, 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 I think we're going to do all right here. Um, because you bring that up was a good cascade. Like, I, yeah, I, I liked I, it. I, <laughs> I think that, sorry to cut you off again, but I think that's Adam Silver's point, right? Like you start pulling on one thread. Yes. It really is incredible what unravels when you start pulling on that one thread and the impact it has all the way down. And if you, if teams aren't thinking about how to, what is, what are all the different ways that scenario, like what are those create your own stories? Like remember mm-hmm. those books where you yep. like choose your own adventure? Like if, we're, if teams aren't choosing their own adventures, like mapping this stuff out, they're already behind. And that's for 2021, much less we're hearing MLS playing in front of fans, USL playing in front of fans, et cetera. Yeah, I, that, I think what the cascade you talked about in the, using the Adam Silver example is absolutely appropriate because one of the challenges really, and I want to get back to the secondary market because, yeah. you know, um, I'm like the broker whisperer over here, so it's yeah, fine. I know you are. <laughs> so they listen, you know, they, they support us. Thank you very much, secondary market. Um <laughs> But the th- first thing that was thinking about it is like a holistic system. And that's something that has been, uh, it's gotten worse over the last 10 years, I think, where everything's like so siloed, right? Like 
Very. In, interaction between the tickets and the food and beverage and the merchandise and then sponsorships, it, it, they're all pulling in eight different directions. And one of the challenges that you talked about, which is pricing people out, is going to be become a, a bigger factor now than ever before because I think it was the L.A. Times did a survey, and they were like, going, you can't go, a family of four can't go to any game in L.A. for less than like $125 a person. And some of the trends that had already been pl- uh, in place before the pandemic are likely to, to impact this at least for the next 18 to 24 months in a much more severe manner than they did before the pandemic. And one of yes. the ones that I think really people, I say this kind of constantly, and you'll probably roll your eyes when I say this one, though, but it's the average American family hasn't received a raise in about 40 years. And so the cost of tickets, though, has increased at, I don't have the exact number, but it's like 40 or 50 times, um, you know, from increase since in that 40 year time. Yeah, right? I mean, it, it, used, it, it so used to be a dollar. Yeah, it used to be a dollar to go to a game, and it's been a dollar up every year on an average ticket price. Yeah, I mean, I looked at, I remember looking at tickets to go to just an average, like random. I want to say shitty. I'll say it because my pocket shitty baseball game, right? Like nothing, no big matchup. It could have been like the Nats and I don't even know who's like the worst team in baseball right now, but it would have been just like, because I needed something to do on a Wednesday evening because my wife was traveling and my, it was summer and my son and I were looking for something to do. And the lowest ticket price, the game I was looking for was like 40 bucks in like yeah. the nosebleeds. And I was like, that's just unconscionable because who's paying $40 to go to that game? You know, it's not like we're over, I'm sitting in here like going, Oh yeah, you know, I can't afford it. It's just the value isn't there. And so back to our value proposition idea is, you know, how do we convince people to rethink the value proposition or with people you've been talking to and working with, you know, how are they thinking through the, the changing the value proposition or approaching things a little more thought, thoughtfully, uh, understanding that um, things may look a little different and things may be different, right? And people might not have the same spending power. Um, they are going to have psychological damage from being kind of under the, um, the strain of a pandemic for at least yeah. six months and probably six months more. You know, yeah. how are people doing that? Like what, what are, what are, or how are you helping people? Or, or where's your head on that? Yeah. Any of those. So it's, it's a little bit more, um, you know, I, when I was at FIVO Fest, uh, last year, um, you know, uh, they, they had Gary Vaynerchuk. Speak. And one of the things that Gary said that really knocked me uh, on my ass was um, he said, I'm obsessed with lifetime value. Um, and he stole that from me. You know. Yeah, I know. And I think I think that's just where I think that's where the industry really has to start really being thoughtful about how they shift is, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, teams are so focused on variable pricing, right? Like, how do I maximize the revenue I make? on every single game, on every single ticket. Like, how am I commoditizing my fans to make sure I'm I'm getting the value out of it? But what they're not looking at is elasticity. Like, how far out will my, like, how far will my fans go? When does it spring back? Like, where is that, like, you know, where's that price point that we just don't, we start to see that inflection point. And so they start thinking about, you know, how do I commoditize every seat in the stadium as opposed to really understanding on a game in game out basis. So not, they're taking an individual game view and not a whole season view. And if they're not taking a whole season view, then they're not taking a look like whole, like lifetime of a fan. 
you know, teams need to be start understanding that, you know, a season ticket holder is not a one-time purchase. A season ticket holder averages like, I think it's like 2.2 years with an organization. And so you need to start looking at that person far more like, and then by like year three, their renewal rate becomes like over 90%. So we get so focused internally on how do we get the season ticket holder for the first time what we don't spend nearly as much time on because industry-wide the average renewal rate on a first-year season ticket is very low it is far lower than everything else you know how much we're not just losing one more year of revenue when they don't renew we're actually losing like another half year of revenue on top of that and then significantly more if we're able to get them to that third year so how many billions of dollars have been left on the table by the sports industry by not thinking about the elasticity of a buyer both per game and lifetime value when all we've tried to do is make sure that we're monetizing getting as much money out of that seat as we can tonight and not worrying about our relationship with that person after tonight right like be the hit it and quit it versus the long-term relationship like i don't want to be crass but you know, we, we are far more in that first category than we are in the second category. And that's why you see the teams across sports that are the most successful a lot of times. It's because they are the ones that have the longest view in the room and they understand it's not, it's, it's not important just to maximize a moment. It's important for that moment to last to, to not just maximize what I can do in that moment, but to maximize the amount of like, uh, what's the, the de-escalation after that? How much more can I get out of? Once that moment moment passes, because you know all that revenue counts from the from the top point all the way all the way to the bottom. Yeah, no, 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 that's right. I, I, that lifetime customer value thing. I don't care who says it because it's like so true. Because the thing is, is it's extremely expensive to gain a customer, and it's yeah. also much cheaper to keep the customers you already have. And then, how much money do you leave behind? is like those should be like the three biggest questions right like how do i get more customers in into the building right like in some way shape or form how do i make my tool my my plat my tool my platform my service my product more valuable so that i can continue to have them take this journey with me so they keep giving me money and then how do i trade them up right so that i increase the value that i can come to expect from it and the popular term that or the book I tell people to look at is Soccernomics because they did a study of soccer fans and they're going well are soccer fans fixed in time and there's like um, instead of looking at it as a fan is fixed they look at them as like having a journey right and it's like an up and yeah. down thing right and depending on where you're at in your life you might be only good for a you know a partial plan in, in the case of baseball um, or a, a half season plan for the NBA or something but then you know, you might have a child, and that would increase your likelihood because the kid loves the sport, or it might make you can only get to four or five games a year. But then the kid comes to high school, so then you, you cherish those things. Like Kobe, Fa- Colby Thackler was on. He talked about the, yeah. the example of the season ticket holder who used the games um, as a way to connect with his teenage daughter, right? So then you use all those games, and like understanding that flow, it helps you better serve your audience. You do a better job of understanding the value proposition, and then you increase the lifetime customer value um, and the de-escalation, which is a great word that you use, of the experience is almost non-existent because it's an emotional connection that they've connected between you and whatever it is their experience that is, it transcends price. 
I have said this over and over and over again, and I'll say it again today. Um, if we had a bingo board and we did a live show, it would be like on the on the bingo card. Uh, is that price is the objection of price is never really about price. It's always about value. And your yeah. job is not to figure out and negotiate on price. It's to uncover what the value is and why the yeah. person's not seeing the value that you think is present. And then changing your message in the way you sell what you're selling to reflect the value that the customer sees. The customer is always right. If they don't see the value in what you're offering, it pays a lot to say, hmm, why don't they see the value? It's not, you know, as opposed to like, why are they an idiot and they don't see the value? To look back at yourself. Trick. Well, so I gave you a lot there. Yeah, no, one, one, I mean, it, it reminded me very much, um, of a conversation. So I'm giving them a free plug here. Um, but Stella Algo, I don't know if you've heard of them. They're, uh, they sit on top of your CRM system and they map customer journey. And I was fortunate enough to, to meet the people who run it, um, at, a couple of conventions and started struck up a conversation with them and they point they made to me because they are literally mapping customer journey. Um, when a season ticket doesn't renew, they don't go back to their previous buying habits. They don't continue to be, they don't stop being a season ticket holder and go back to being a six time individual game buyer, which was the reason they bought the season tickets. They don't buy anything. And their journey back to more games is incredibly slow after that. They don't come back the next year and then getting them back into the stadium is a phenomenally slow journey. And what we need to do is care more about the process they took to become a season ticket holder than, and care about the journey afterwards and providing them solutions for the journey afterwards than we do and, and think more about that consistently than we do, which is like, great. We got them. Oops. They're gone. Like, like, no, like, you know, we need those six individual game tickets. Like that's six individual tickets. They brought three people on average. We didn't just lose a season ticket holder. We actually lost 20 tickets from the year before at a higher average ticket price than a season ticket holder. So we didn't just lose the 34 games. They had the shocker. They're 34 games. They had, at a season ticket price that year, we also lost the 20 tickets at a higher average ticket price from the year before. And so while we may have gained a little bit of money last year, we've lost a ton of money over what that person had done, the lifetime value of that. So having no, not thinking through that customer journey and that life cycle that you talked about from Soccernomics, man, just, I just, I, and listen, I, I, I want to make sure like I hold myself accountable to this too, right? Like, I should have thought more when I was on the team side about first year season tickets and the journey people take there. How can we create more partial plans that allow people to have the experience up there so they're prepared to be a season ticket holder when they're there, right? Like all those things matter because year two and year three needs to matter more to us than year one does. And year one matters more than years two and years three of being a season ticket holder. Like the most important year in the existence of a season ticket holder really should be year two. Like that's the year we should be obsessed with, right? Mm -hmm. We should be obsessed with getting year one people to year two, and we should be obsessed with year two people to year three. To me, that's the biggest inflection point because if we can get one to two at a greater percentage, and then we get more of those people over to three where we know all of a sudden they normalize at an insanely high rate from season tickets, man, that, that would be, if, if I was back team side tomorrow, that would be a part of the journey that I would be far more obsessed with than I was when I was there before. 
yeah. Again, when you do when you go off in these smart answers, number one, you make me look bad. Number two, <laughs> you give me a lot of stuff to follow up with. <laughs> but I think the one thing is is you know, and, and we didn't really even talk about this before, or I guess we did a little bit, is incentives though. And what you're talking about is how do we incentivize change internally and change of behavior externally, right? Um, and the bigger idea is like you said, I want to hold myself accountable to this, right? And um, so the question I kind of want to ask here, and I'm going to ask it as forthrightly as possible, I believe, is yeah. how do we help people understand that you got to look for ideas that are not just the ones that I'm getting in sports business or I'm just getting in the world of tickets. Because if I look at my career, and I, I've been talking about like some of my experiences a lot more because I think that I'm not doing people that are listening or paying attention a disservice by not talking about my journey. I yep. open nightclubs all over the country, including in Houston where you're at, right? In St. Louis, Chicago, Fort Lauderdale. I have worked on the opening of a museum for Paul Allen, who helped start Microsoft. I've worked yeah. in tickets. I've, I've worked on a presidential elect, a re-election campaign, right? Um, I've done all these things. And what it is, though, is it helps me not see the world in just one set fixed way. And when yeah. you're talking about, like, holding yourself accountable when you were on the team side, um, how do we help encourage people to be willing to look for new ideas, right? And a great example is... Everybody in sports lo seems to love Simon Sinek and Gary Vee. And I'm yeah. going to tell you that, I mean, you know, from being a New Yorker, Gary Vee's a nice guy, right? Like, he's like, yeah. I told, um, are his ideas the most effective and most valuable? Um, he's great about motivating people to, like, push themselves harder. His marketing ideas are often not very good. Uh, you know, the, the, he's not a ve he, he's very good at market. Take this from someone who knows. He's very yeah. good at marketing himself. But is he good at marketing and selling, uh, you know, a big consumer brand all the time? I don't know if that's true, you know, but I'll say I don't want to shit on him either because I want to be like, yeah. how do we, you, you need to think about other things, right? Like look at somebody we, I know we both love, Anthony Inarino, right? Yes. He's great, right? Or look to ideas from people like Peter Drucker, who I quote from all the time, right? Um, yeah. Tom Peters, who's, you know, another great guy, you know. How do we get people to expose themselves to all these ideas from all over the place because they have value? Yeah, I think you know, one of the things that uh, – so I think the answer is we just we, we need to be the ones that bring a lot of those newer ideas and newer thoughts to the table and, and hopefully watch people react to them and speak more to them. You know, one of the things that I was influenced by, and I know you – I know both of us are, are not fans of discounted pricing or anything like that, but – you know, one of the things that I was really intrigued by was, you know, a number of restaurants in New York City during the beginning of the pandemic selling $50 gift certificates that had a $100 value and not waiting until not doing that when they were about to shut down shop. But a lot of them who took a very proactive approach right away. And, you know, to me, that did a few things that were interesting, right? It did discounting, which I'm not a huge fan of. Um, but what it did was as opposed to looking at it because they did it so early as, a, as opposed to having it look like something that was rushed to keep the lights on, it looked more like civic support. Like we know when you come back, you're going to want to eat, you're going to want to eat here. 
we're going to want to be open when you do. We're doing this because not only do we need the help, but we want to be able to help you too and give you something of extreme value. And for a lot of people, maybe eating at a restaurant they wouldn't you know, normally be able to afford. And that not only helps these restaurants keep the light on, but that actually also gave them a lot of positive publicity that probably filled in some of those gaps. And it gave the community a greater appreciation for those restaurants as doing that up front. I'm sure everyone who did it like 10th, 11th, 12th was a copycat or was doing it to save the business. But those first movers did it in a way that probably created way more positive than it did negative. One of them, one of my favorite restaurants in, in Austin, Texas basically said, we need some help keeping the lights on. What we'll do is we'll create a series. You spent, you spent $50 with us. We're going to create a series of web videos that show you how we cook some of our favorite meals. And I just I thought some of that stuff was just so innovative and thoughtful and smart. And, you know, my background, you know, I was a bartender before I, I did anything else. And so I, I I tend to always appreciate that industry. But I think it's we need to be, you know, in, in some of the work that we do, we need to be highlighting these things and talking about these things and, you know, getting the industry, which can be very and, and I, I'd say, you know, I'm. I'm I'm with this as well, can be very insular to start understanding that the best innovations are outside. But those innovations are not in the commoditization space. We've already stolen everything we can from the airline industry, the hotel industry, like all those ones that are severe people commodity industries. We we stole all the bad ideas from the the airlines and the hotels. We haven't stolen anything from Four Seasons, let me tell you. That's, and that's right. Like we should, we should, we need to be looking at those ones that are obsessed with lifetime value, that aren't more, that are concerned about the hotel room, your second hotel room, and your third hotel room more than they are your first, or your first hotel room, or your first stay there. And I think that's that's the, having the longest, having the longest view in the room. There are certainly people in sports that that do that, but there's a significant amount of organizations and. You know, I know a lot of really smart people who are under a tremendous amount of pressure. So I, I want to make sure that, but thinking lifetime value and maximizing the moment don't necessarily have to be separate things. You don't have to do one or the other. You can do both. Right. Well, I think the pandemic kind of highlighted something too, which is how important it is to get fans into the stadiums and into the venues because all of this kind of, um, you, you know, I, I'll call them spreadsheet jockeys because, you know, anything that's going to be uh, controversial can always come from me. I don't, you know, I'm, it's on brand for me. But, you know, yeah. like, and this, this spreadsheet jockey term comes from, like, other people in, like, marketing. They say it all the time. Because what you've done is, like, you try, you spend so much time trying to um, get to the lowest common denominator that you forget you're dealing with people. And so it's not, people are just doing what they're incentivized to do, you know, right? And it, it takes a lot of courage to be able to step back and go, hey, we can do this today, right? We can charge you, here's comes, comes another one on the bingo card, $17 for a Bud Light. Yeah. Should we do that? Because the truth is, is like, if you charge me $17 for a Bud Light, A, I may not drink that thing because that's like, highway robbery B though, it's going to change the relationship you have with me. Right. Yeah. And I'm just, this is, I'm using my example, right? Because I'm going to feel like, eh, you know, I love to go to the thing or I love to go to see this, the, a game or a concert or whatever. But like, I also like to have a drink and like hang out. And like, if it's going to be $17 a beer and you're charging me $50 for a t-shirt, 
I'm going to feel a little bit used by that. And I'm not going to necessarily always make the decision to go out and do that when I can easily go stay at home and have on my big screen TV and have a, a, a refrigerator full of beer. Um, I can go hang out at the ball. Well, DC doesn't really have great bars, so we'll, we'll, we'll skip that example. But when I'm in New York or London or Houston where there are great bars, I can go to the bars and meet Brett for a drink there and like hang out and yeah. shoot the shit. Um, God, I'm cussing a lot on this one, man. Uh, is, uh, I bring the worst. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But, you, you know, you have to consider these things because it's not just that your competition is for the customer is between them buying and not buying because they're buying other things. So your competition's all these decisions they're making. And so, like, when you're offering the live event, the live game experience, right, if you're, you know, I live in D.C., so if you're at Capital One, you're the, the, the capitals, right? They do a great job, um, but they're not just competing against you not go, going home and watching the capitals on TV. They're also com, um, competing against Pie Pizzeria, which is a block away and has a great beer selection. Um, the Smith, which is right on the corner across the way and like has a really great bar and a, a pretty strong menu. Uh, there's a Shake Shack nearby. There's tons of museums. There's uh, you know, and most of them are free. Um, you know, there could be a Nationals game going on at the same time. There's a yeah. Capitals game. Uh, there's a bunch of really great bar scene, you know, brewery scene around, uh, out in like Northeast DC. Um, you know, crossing the bridge, right? Because to get from Maryland or, or, I mean, Virginia, um, or coming through traffic to get from Maryland, right? You're competing against all these things and you have to put that into the context. So then saying, Hey, look, I can charge you $17 for the Budweiser and I can charge you $57 for, or, $50 I saw parking at Nats Park last year. I can charge you $50 for parking. Uh, but the thing is, is like, what is that going to do to the lifetime customer value? What is that going to do to your relationship to your customer? You know, how likely is it going to be that you're going to get them on the path that's going to um, turn them from like somebody who maybe spent $200 at the game uh, on a Thursday night to somebody who comes and gives you $100, $150 six nights a week, a season, right? And they... And so instead, you you know what's that? That's six and thirty. That's nine hundred bucks as opposed to four hundred bucks. Your stadium's fuller. Your players have a better experience. Your fans have a better experience. The customer has a better experience. You've made more money. All these positives. That was a rant. Rants no, also that, on the bingo card. That was card. great. I, I, I agree with all of it. And the thing, I, the the baseline we always have to come back to in sports, it is always better to be in the stadium. Like no matter what. The fan experience of being in a stadium, those are like, I know it sounds corny and cliche, those are the things that you remember for the rest of your life, right? Like those are just, it's, it's indelible. Like I can tell you, I can, even though I probably watched a million times more games on my computer or my television than I have being at them in person, I can tell you that the vast majority of the experiences I have as a fan of a team, the ones that resonate the most are the ones when I was in the stadium and I was there. But just yesterday, I think, or just or like Tuesday, I think I'm watching an NBA game on my TV. I'm watching the um, the promotion game for the thing on that. And I'm watching a Yankees game on my phone. And I'm drinking a beer that cost me 50 cents while having a sandwich that cost me maybe a quarter all in to that. And so the experience I have is, you know, 75 cents maybe cost me 50 cents for that game. It cost me $1 for the or maybe less for the ESPN Plus cost me less for the, the TV thing. So I'm sitting there watching three sporting events with a beer and a sandwich for probably under $5. Yeah. And 
it's always better to be there, but being there at $125 is competing with being on my couch for $5. And that's the, that's the thing we have to pull closer right. is it's not that people don't want to be there. That is always going to be true. It's always going to be more valuable to have experiences in person. Um, but the value proposition has to be pulled way closer together. Like went on a road trip with my family just so we could, we, we could finally get out a little bit. And we went to the national parks and the value proposition for the national parks is incredible, right? Like $35, everybody gets in and you can go back for like a week. And that value proposition, nobody's going to pull up there and be like, no, and nobody's not going to go back to a national park because that car full of people or that one person for $35 versus the glory of what you're about to see, that value proposition still holds. Yeah. And we have just created a very large separation between what I get from being on my couch versus what, what I get when I'm being there. And even though this one wins, is it worth the, I mean, I 25 times more expensive mm -hmm. to be there watching one game than it is watching three at the same time, like that's the one that I don't know if there's a perfect answer out there right now, but we need to work really hard at pulling those two things closer. I think that's where a lot of focus needs to be as we head to 2021. How do we pull those things closer together? Because we've just taught a lot of people to stay home and watch television. Like we yeah. just like like all these people that we have just educated over the last few years to like sit at home and watch television. How do we re-educate them? And it's not going to be like, oh, I'll check to go see the game. Oh, it cost me fifty dollars a ticket. <laughs> yeah, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah, and and it's a you bring up a great point, like of bringing the thing together. It's always better to be in the ballpark or in the stadium. And I'll use an example. Uh, we talked about this before, but I'll, I'll share this example too. It's um, because it, it's how how quickly you turn somebody into a fan if they experience what you in your best form. So Catherine, my, who you saw maybe off the corner of the camera just a second ago, she was not. She grew up with a couple brothers. They played sports. She was like, she likes the Yankees. She's not like a huge sports fan though. But my son Cormac, he loves soccer. He loves football. He we're huge Tottenham fans, just like you. You know, we go back about this all the time. Um, but so not last year, but the year before, for Thanksgiving, we went to London for the week. Going, leading into Thanksgiving because they changed the schedule at D.C. public schools and we had an extra day two, day on each end. So it was like instead of two days, we have four days off. And then by the time you factor in the weekends, it's a party time to go to London. And we were like, we're going to go see the Premier League. We're going to go yeah. see Tottenham and Chelsea. And so the experience for Catherine was transformational. Um, you know, I used my connections at the Spurs to buy the tickets that were – um, they would be premium any, anywhere, right? They were 11, 11th row on the, uh, the center line, um, and they were probably 75 pounds. That's probably about approximately $100. Um, so, you know, not, not sitting in those bleeds. It was sitting in really great seats. My, my, she can't stop talking about the experience of going to see Tottenham live. Um, and we spent as much money as we possibly could in the, um, the gift shop. Uh, we bought food and drink, the whole thing. You know, so like, the, because the ticket was, I feel like, fairly reasonable for what we got, we probably tripled the amount of money we spent at the game, 
But then, number one, we planned, before the pandemic, we planned another holiday to be able to go to two matches because we were able to, for spring break, line it up with a match against, uh, I believe, Everton and a Champions League match. And, like, the yeah. whole thing was built because Catherine wanted to go back and see more football. And she was, like, going, and if there's other matches at other places in London, I totally want to yeah. go. And I don't think that she's unique in that way. I think that sometimes, like, pricing, because you think you can maximize this thing or you think you're maximizing each touch point, does you a disservice. Because instead, you're holding out. There's an op- Every empty seat is an opportunity lost. And there's an opportunity cost of trying to get $20 for a outfield seat or a bleacher seat when you could fill the stadium at $10. Whereas like you might sell only a quarter of the tickets at 20 bucks. The revenue may actually end up being the same or comparable, but the experience and the memories and the amount of people you serve changes dramatically. And even if it's a break even thing, again, Look at the lifetime customer value and how far ahead have you become. And I, because again, how much money has Catherine spent on Tottenham Hotspur stuff for me and Cormac? I can't, it's thousands of dollars now. The first day the new training top was out, she ordered it for me so that I'd have it for Father's Day. I mean, this is like, she's not unusual, right? This is what, this is, that's a real example. And I hope it translates because that's, her lifetime customer value would have been, if you looked at it through the regular lens that we often look through things here, would have been zero. Yep. You know, you would have, she would have not been a worth converting. But then she got there, she saw Harry Kane score, she saw Deli Alley score, she saw Sun score the goal of the year. Yeah. And it was amazing. And that, now she is probably, she would have to be like an A plus, like, you know, fan, customer, because yep. she spends on everything. I mean, if I opened up the cabinet, you saw me Spurs coffee mugs and water bottles I have. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I don't I know where the question is. That was another rant. You're full no, of rants but today. I think, so I think so being – so we talked about Atlanta United a little bit before and, you know, the Atlanta Falcons, Atlanta United have become, you know, one of those organizations that – and I know we – like it doesn't matter if they win or lose. The way they've treated their fans, their fans show up, right? Like they build a incredible stadium for their fans that costs out of pocket a significant amount of money. And then instead of going into that stadium and having the highest, highest ticket prices, which is what a lot of people do and the highest F and D prices, they were actually like mid table on pricing. And they were one of the teams that like showed the deep cuts they took on the food and beverage. But along the way, like a $9 beer is a decision. A $5 beer is no decision. Like mm-hmm. the money comes out of my pocket on a $5 beer. It, even if it, I don't drink it, it's cool. It, yes. It's, it, there's no decision. Like, a mid-tier, a mid-level NFL pricing or MLS pricing for that stadium, that's not a decision. That's an easy, that's an easy yes. Because the value is completely commensurate with what, what you're getting out of it. And so the more the value lines up, the more investment you make in your fans, it's not shocking that, you know, people come back or not. And we know we talked about this before too, but like, you couldn't look at, and I know this year sucks, but like in 2019, you couldn't have looked at two different circumstances for minor league baseball and major league baseball. Major league baseball is on like the fifth straight year of declining attendance across the league. And the even what the sales are doesn't align with what you're seeing in the stadiums. And minor league baseball is still on an upward trajectory. 
in markets that 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 have less disposable income in a lot of ways than that. But it's because the value proposition of minor league baseball makes sense. It aligns with the experience that you get outside of that. Major League Baseball, it's still better to be there, but there is a gap between what you're spending and what the experience is that they need to close or it's not going to, it's, it's not going to get better. Yeah. Well, that's that thing, that concept I talk about pretty regularly. And as the pandemic has ruined most things that I talk about regularly, the one that's fallen to the wayside a little bit is the differentiation gap. And that's just the, the get the distance between where you think you are in your head and where your customers think you are. And if it's, if it's wide, then that's bad because you're a commodity, right? And like, they're going to treat you like that. And if it's close together, then you can probably get a price premium. And the thing is, is that for some reason, due through a lot of different reasons, customers have and fans have been taught that a ticket is only valuable and only worth the premium if it's a quote unquote hot ticket, right? Like that we've, we train people for that and that we've trained them to think of a sporting event or a concert in a lot of cases as a special night out, something that we can't experience like going to the movies or something. Right. And it's, it's bad. It's bad business is what it is. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just totally bad business because again, if baseball is a great example, I love baseball. My, my latest theory has been that if you put the right processes in place and you put like a decent quality product on the field, and, um, you know, you did, you did some really smart things with the Mets. The Mets could be as valuable and make as much money as the Yankees. Call yep. me new owner of the Mets. I totally want to be the chief revenue officer. Uh, I'm, I'm, yes. I'm around. Um, but it's a great example because the thing is, is they're squeezing the few fans that are willing to take the punishment more and more and more. And the game is struggling, but all the while they're reporting these numbers. So things are propping up these ticket sales numbers because it's tickets distributed. It's not people there because the reality is, is all you got to do is go to the empty seats galore Twitter page on any night of baseball season. And you'd see like even Nats Park when they were running away, like making their first trip to the World Series, you'd see it and there might be a third of the park would be, that would be a good night for baseball, right? So the sad truth is like looking at these games where there's no fans allowed, they don't look unfamiliar to how they were last year when people were allowed, allowed in at a lot of these places. And it's unfortunate because I love baseball. Like one of my most cherished memories is going to the all-star game in 2001 at Safeco field and seeing a rod switch places with Cal Ripken. So Cal Ripken got to play shortstop in the all-star game in his fall, the final time um, and seeing Ichiro throw out, um, you know, like get the game winning hit in the first game of the 2001 season to, for the Mariners to beat the A's. Um, you know, being at the park for, uh, like Johan Santana's no hitter. I mean, like all these things, like, you know, yeah. these are all like baseball, the bloody sock game. I talk about all these things all the time and to see it so mismanaged and see the, like the trust and the relationship between customers and fans broken to such an extent. Um, just because of maybe like, lack of direction or maybe a, a need to rethink the strategic ideas that underpin the business. It's, it, it's, it's, it's really tough to watch because 
backing it up to where I look at most of the time, which is strategy and money. You're also, if you think that it's great, you're making $9 billion a year from baseball. I'm going to tell you that you, the owner should be pissed off because you're probably leaving 50% more at a minimum on the table. Like I, you know, I think that base, baseball could be making 15 mil, billion a year when in, in a normal time. Easy. But that's me. I was, uh, I was, uh, so 2003, I was at the Aaron Boone home run game um, as, as a Yankee fan, and I could, on a bartender's salary, I could afford to take a train from Rhode Island to New York, have a ticket for the game, and drink beers at the game with one of my good with one of my good college buddies. Like those were all things that I could afford. That if you extrapolate the pricing on all those things out now, there is no shot I would have been able to like. Uh, a playoff game, series seven, like all the, like every, the like game seven, like all those things now, like even a train ticket now, like all those things have just, have just raised past the point of understanding that there's just no, no bartender in Newport, Rhode Island can afford to get on a train and watch a game seven of an ALCS right now. That's just, that doesn't, that doesn't exist. And that is a really unfortunate thing. And I think we, we as an industry spent so many years being fan focused, fan focused, fan focused, um, that instead of, you know, then all of a sudden we start getting to access to all this data and all this information. And I think this pendulum just swung from like fan focused all the way over to like analytics and commoditization that there needs to really be a, a reckoning to get to that middle ground, like analytics, and numbers are awesome and they should drive every decision that you make. Like they really should, but you should also be talking to your fans constantly and it should be a consistent dialogue. And what you should be doing when you're doing this is taking the numbers and having that dialogue with your fans. Do these things make sense? Where is the, where is that middle ground? We just, we've cut our fans out of that decision making process. And it's their money. Like, that's just, that just, that seems to be poor. That seems to be a poor way of going about things. Um, and again, and again, I hold myself accountable to that too, because, you know, just personally, a lot of the decisions I made at the Houston Dynamo didn't necessarily align. I'll go all the way back with like when I was at the Washington Freedom, where like literally all I did was listen to fans during my time selling the Washington Freedom. And thinking about what the analytics had been, had been thinking. So we did end up raising pricing a little, but we had a 90% year one to year two renewal rate and we grew our sales 300%. A lot of it because we were very thoughtful from one to the other. Yeah. The, with the data. And again, this, if we had a bingo card and we were doing a lot of live show, something about data would be on the bingo card. Um, yeah. It's to me, it's, and this has come up a lot more because I think as things are coming back, the need to use data better is, it was always there. But to be, you know, it, it's even more important now because to me, the data gets misused because it's used to, to make a decision that's in theory safer, right? It's again meant to make it help me make a decision that, well, you know, it's like the same as like, every, you know, you can't get fired for hiring IBM, right? It's the same thing, but it's there's too much data. Like we all were, we're flooded with data to the point that there's never any insight provided, and yeah. and it, it becomes this thing where we're almost instead of going like 
what in do we need the data for? We just go, we'll just default to have more data, right? Because yeah. <laughs> just the other day I posted, and I don't know if you had a chance to listen to this one, but we were, I was talking to Matt Wolf, and he'll love the fact that I'm mentioning him again because yeah. he, he's like a pretty funny guy. If you have never met him, if you haven't listened I will, to I him. Got, I, I have, no joke, that's actually loaded onto my phone right now because I've connected with Matt during this downturn too. Yeah, so. he's been really well, great about this, and I really like him. I, I, I also like to make fun of him because he's like kind of like me where he don't take himself very seriously. Yeah. Um, but one of the things we were talking about is like this this all-encompassing chase after more and more data is really stealing some of these precious memories and precious moments that people have. And so, of course, you can drive everybody to have mobile tickets all the time. So you, And you can tell them, oh, it's like for security and safety. Customers know you're lying to them that you just want the data and you don't want to do anything of value. You got to keep it. You, there's a balance, right? And I think, you know, and it's the data people will give it to you freely if you give them something of value. And then the data always needs to be filtered through not what people did in the past, but what people are going to do in the future. Because yeah. this data is just a snapshot of where people were and what they've done in the past. It can be predictive of what they will do in the future. But that doesn't necessarily guarantee that things will be the same. You know, so like there was a big deal in the secondary market where that uh, got it kind of announced over the last couple of days, or I don't know if it's official yet, but uh, DTI buying Broker Genius and Ticket Evo, I think, and like, or a couple of like different companies. And everybody's like, oh my God, this like mind blown thing, right, for the brokers. And I was like going, the thing is, is it's, it's a great opportunity, but is are these technologies and are these tools going to be dynamic enough or used properly to reflect what comes next? And I think a lot of times the decision making gets stuck in what happened, what made sense yesterday, and it's never looking forward. And you always kind of have to be um, looking at the future that's already outside your window, right? Yeah. What's already happening? What you know? What's already impacting people's decisions as opposed to what's always impacted them? Because the basics always work, right? Like. The first rule of marketing is somebody's got to pay attention to you um, before you, any, you make any other statement, right? Um, people value, if you're always looking at how to increase the value of what you offer to somebody, um, you're always going to be in the conversation, right? You're likely on a good path. You know, all these things that are basics are always going to stay the same, but the reality of people's lives is always on a, like, a bit of a, you know, like, a, it's, it's in flux, it's in motion, and it's never exactly the same from one moment to the next and looking at the data too much can cause you to believe that people are stagnant as opposed to dynamic. And, yeah. you know, you, and you got to always remember that people are dynamic. I think it's, it's such an awesome point. And I think, you know, one of the things is, like I said, and, and I think this is going to sound like I'm repeating here a little bit, but like, it's okay. You'll like, you'll like this as a market. Blow smoke up, blow smoke up my tuchus. It's fine. Numbers, numbers matter, but narrative matters too, right? Like the narrative has to matter. Like that's just, it's so critical. It's so important. And, you know, like, I know this is going to sound um, like I'm, I'm dating myself significantly, right? But like, you know, Ted Williams hitting 400 mattered, right? That is a statistical milestone and achievement that mattered. But the narrative around it, like the chase for it, the him getting the chance to sit out the last game and choosing not to do it and getting two hits, right? Like 
that to me, the number mattered, but almost more important was the narrative that I was told around it. Um, and, and that I do. And it, you know, it reminded me of, you know, one of the teams I worked for. I, I can't be very specific about this one, but one of the teams I worked for, our president said, we're going to do this in rent and ticket sales revenue. And I said, um, based off of historical analytic data. And I said, well, actually, I'm using the data. I'm looking a little bit harder at the data, but I'm also telling you the narratives about the schedule that we have. Um, I'm telling, talking about the narratives of what happened with our ticket sales staff. And I'm telling you that we're probably going to do 20% worse than what you said. And I was right. <laughs> um, because it's not just the analytics matter to a point, but the narrative matters just as much. And like I said before, those two things, we need to hit that balance of understanding what is the narrative and what do the analytics say? What is the narrative and how do we make sure that we are closing the gap between those two things because the narrative mattered for a long time more than anything else and we were leaving a lot of money on the table as an industry then the analytics mattered too much and we start commoditizing our fans and they don't want to to come back so there has to be this middle ground where we just make really smart decisions that allow our fans to be able to come back more while generating enough revenue to be a solvent business along the way that that has to be that middle ground yeah i think the story always matters and it, it matters more now than ever. Um, yeah. I think that the analytics made it sexy to think the story didn't matter because it makes it sexy to seem that like you can predict people in all these different ways, right? The, yeah. you know, I'm trying to think of the way that this was described. There's a book coming out in May of next year. It was supposed to be May of this year. The pandemic shut this down. Bookmark it, buy it now, pre-order it. It's called Future Proof by Kevin Roos, who writes for the New York Times. And he talked about how the algorithms have, have kind of smoothed out the edges of people and everything's sort of um, monotone in nature. And I think what data has done is it makes us think that we can just treat everybody exactly the same and that people are not emotional creatures. And all of this stuff is, is incredibly built on emotion. Ted Williams, if he just hit 400 and there wasn't the story around him, it would be a great fact. It would be a probably an amusing story if you lived in Boston. Instead, it's an iconic story, and it tells one – it kind of encapsulates the beauty of baseball, right? And it's something that like should be in every bit of marketing material and kind of constantly reminded because it it talks – you know, it, it says so much about the game, right? Yeah. And, and, it, and, it, and I think that is – the most important thing to keep in mind as we're moving forward is that these stories, they matter, right? Because one of the great gifts that anybody who works in a team has been given is they have brands that have real emotional resonance with their customers. Mm -hmm. um, people talk about fanboys for Apple or Tesla or some of these things. Real fanboys love their sports teams, right? And so you've been given this gift, so to not tell people stories, to not allow them the opportunity to fully immerse themselves to the fullest extent of their their, their desire with, in, into your sport and your team is a missed opportunity, right? Like, sure, maybe back in the day the, the, the storytelling took such a president that they were leaving money on the table. But you can fix that. 
what the problem is, and you brought it up earlier, and I think this will be like a great place for us to kind of wrap up because we've been going now for a long yeah. time now. We're like two hours <laughs> into to each yeah. other today, yeah. if not more. <laughs> um, you, you know, is this idea that like if if you have the people in the and this comes back to nightclubs because we're, I've told this story about incremental revenue and it's like going if I figure out how to get the person in to the bar into the nightclub, I can monetize them. If I don't have the fan in the door. Right. Or if I even worse, like to some of the points you brought up earlier, if I get the fan in there and then they don't want to come back because they, they, they've changed their buying habits, it's going to be nearly impossible to get them to come back. Right. It's not impossible, but it's really, really difficult. And the data is out there. It'll show you that it's um, I want to say I think it's six to seven times more expensive than getting them originally. And I might be wrong, but I'll look for it. And if I do, I'll I'll share it on the show notes uh, to get somebody to come back. If you leave money on the table at the front end and you're smart about telling the story and building your relationship and keeping people in the, in the, in your system, you can make that money back, right? It's, uh, yeah. but if you overprice people, treat them like commodity, don't invest in the relationship, you might not get a second chance. Yeah. And it's, it's such a, it's, you want to talk about how important narrative is, you know, I think I tell everybody I'm a Yankees fan. They look at me and they're like, oh yeah, like, pretty easy to be a Yankee fan when they're winning championships, right? And I was like, I was a Yankee fan with Ricky Henderson, Dave Winfield, Don Mattingly, and a group of pitchers that let up nine runs a game, and the Yankees lost all the time, right? Like, one of my favorite memories was actually in his last year watching Don Mattingly qualify for the playoffs, finally, after his whole career. But I became such a huge fan of them because my dad was, and my dad passed that on to me. And because I started to understand the narrative of the hitman and the big Haas and Hendu and these players and these stories mattered to me. And I didn't have, I had like, I had the paper every morning and I had the television. I didn't have all the access to all the rest of the stuff um, that could help shape the narrative that they can embrace to shape, shape the narrative. And man, like we are like, we forget that you so, so we're putting so much at risk right now when we commoditize our fans we put at risk the father passing it down to their kid and making it almost impossible to not be a fan of that team. And then we make it a decision for someone like me, whether or not to go to, to games. And when you do both of those things, I mean, man, like how many games a year, how many games a year would I go to? Like even of the Astros, right? Would I go to if I felt the value proposition was, was, was perfect. And again, this is not, to hold them below or above. It's just, I, I live in Houston. Right. Um, yeah. The DC, usually they get, they get examples from me because I yeah. live here, not because of anything else. It's tough because if I'm not getting a ticket from there, that someone I know as much as I'd love to go and I'd love to share baseball with my stepkids now, it's more of a decision. Whereas there was no decision for my dad, even though he lived in Connecticut and New York was two and a half hours away. And that's a tough trip to lug kids up, watch a game and lug them back. We went to three or four Yankees and, and my parents were not well off when I was growing up. We did not have a lot of discretionary income. Like there was no decision. We were going to three or four Yankee games a year, even, even doing that. And I think that's the, Man, I, I hope, man, I hope we find a way to, to, to bring that value proposition back a little bit more central because, like I said, you know, we're, we're not just jeopardizing revenue. <laughs> you know, we're jeopardizing 
these these relationships between a father and a son and what going to those games meant to me to me and my father and if that becomes a decision the father is going to feel more antagonized about the team because they made a decision it's not going to be that kind of romantic relationship that you know my dad and I had with with all these teams and my brother had with all these teams and even towards the end my mom having with all these teams I mean you know, my dad, when I was living back there, my dad woke up in the mornings to watch Tottenham with me because he thought it was so cool that, like, all of a sudden I was now sharing a team with my dad. Um, and there's that romantic relationship there because Tottenham can't, it's in England, and Tottenham can't take advantage of our relationship. Like, it's like, it's not putting that. You've and I'm not, not seeing my credit like, card bills, Brett. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm saying, like, that relationship isn't in jeopardy because we have to make a decision about paying the prices to go to the games. And even as as fair as you say Tottenham was, they got a lot of pushback when they opened the new stadium with the pricing that they that they put in place there. And I was looking at the pricing and I was like, "Damn, that's real reasonable compared to the United States." But that's just, it like, because our relationship is abusive at this point in the life. Yeah, and and so looking at that, I was like, "Oh man, that, what are people complaining about? It looks really reasonable for that stadium." But I think that, and I think to your point, I think that's that's the that's the problem with it now is that. Um, we've taken something that was very romantic and made it very analytical when we really need to be doing both. Yeah, no. Uh, I think that's a really great thing to um, leave it on. Brett, yeah. where do we want to point people to, talk, to see you until the next time we do the, these rambling rant sessions? Yeah, um, empoweredsalesperson.com. Uh, that's a website, that's a blog I have for reps and people um, throughout sports business. Um, you know, otherwise, I'm at B. Zalaski on Twitter. Um, where I'm way less focused on just the individual rep and way more focused on, on the industry as a whole. And I'm closing in on 2000 followers. So like, let's, let I want my goal is to finish the year there. So we'll, we'll get you to 2000 followers. Come on. I, um, we'll get you there. Don't worry. I haven't been public about it until now, but I want to be there and sustained by the end of the year. You know, my audience is what you're doing. You're, you're <laughs> <laughs> they will follow you now. You're going to get a good first place to come out about it. I That's know exactly right. Yeah. You know where you are. You're like, you know, know dummy. <laughs> Brett, man, thank you so much for doing the pod, man. Absolutely. Dave. Always. There you have it. There was my conversation with my man, Brett Zelaski. Let me know what you think by sending me an email. It's my name, Dave at Dave Make sure if you got this far an hour and 17, 18 minutes into this podcast um, and you dig the stuff that Brett and I were talking about or you just dig the podcast in general that you make sure you subscribe to the Talking Tickets newsletter. You can get that at talkingtickets.substack.com. You can also visit my website. It's davewakeman.com where you can find out my blog, all kinds of different stuff. I just posted a new opportunity that will be going out in this Friday's Talking Tickets newsletter that may be very, very interesting to folks. So make sure you get the Talking Tickets newsletter and you follow the Dave Wakeman blog uh, to make sure that you don't miss out on any opportunities. There's some really, really cool stuff I'm scheming up here. Uh, Make sure that you check out my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection, as I mentioned at the start. They have some great content up there about reinvention, revenue, uh, relationships, rebuilding those relationships, um, all kinds of great stuff. So check it out. It's bookingprotect.com forward slash home, and you can find the blog and all kinds of stuff. Coming through the pandemic, um, if you haven't considered giving offering your customers refund protection or finding a way to give it to your customers, now's a great time to c- consider it. So reach out, talk to uh, Simon and Kat, 
Kath, all those folks, uh, anybody. This like the nicest group of people, the greatest people, and they do fantastic work. So check them out, uh, bookingprotect.com forward slash home. Visit the We Will Recover project webpage at wewillrecover.live where you'll find um, the We Will Recover project, which is a project that was put together by Martin and Anar and the Activity Stream team uh, to help people figure out ways to overcome and find growth again out of the pandemic. Um, we will recover live has webinars, resources, blogs, all kinds of stuff, 20 something organizations from around the world, which I always forget and end up listing the same people. Um, but you know, I'm involved. So take that for what it's worth. But, uh, Angela and Joe from ticketing professionals in Australia, uh, Andrew and Carol at the TPC in Birmingham, QQ, Intix, uh, Made Media, just Stay 22, all, all kinds of people from all parts of the industry. Um, you know, check it out. Make sure you, you, you see what's going on over there. Uh, as we come into the fall, there's going to be a whole lot more activity over there. Um, we're going to focus on helping people get through this thing as best as we can. So check them out. We will recover live. Um, if you have gotten this far, make sure you subscribe. The Business of Fun is on all the major podcast platforms, so subscribe, leave a rating or review. It means the world to me. Make sure you connect with me on the social medias. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm at David Wakeman there, um, or I'm on the LinkedIn. Uh, that's where you'll find a lot of this stuff. Um, if you need to talk to somebody, you know, I can't emphasize this enough. Send me a note, daviddavewakeman.com. I don't want you to feel like you're going through this period of time alone. If you don't have somebody you feel comfortable or you just want me to crack some jokes, I can do it. I'm happy to do it. Um, I love to hear from people who listen or follow along. Um, I can't emphasize that enough. So send me the note, daviddavewakeman.com. Um, I've still got a couple more great episodes planned on the podcast that's coming up. So make sure you subscribe. Don't miss the thing until next time. I will talk to you soon. So take it easy. See ya.